And if you're a visitor with us and you're thinking in your mind, well, that was quite a pastoral prayer. Pastor Adam is just setting me up for 1 Corinthians 7. Because we're going to be talking about all manner of things related to the gospel and marriage. Or rather, the Apostle Paul is. And if you are a visitor with us, I would just have you know that our typical practice is to preach through books of the Bible. We take certain passages and we go passage by passage, verse by verse. And so we are winding up in 1 Corinthians 7 this morning, or this afternoon rather. Uh, but that's our typical practice. And so there's no special reason for landing on this text other than the fact that God inspired this text next. And that's the one that I'm going to preach. And so 1 Corinthians 7 is where we're going to be. And as you're there, I would have you hear now the public reading of God's word in anticipation of hearing it preached. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote... It is good for a man not to have sexual relationships with his wife. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The woman should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, then they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn up or to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, then she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Now to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, then he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, then let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, last week in chapter 6, we learned that since God cares about our bodies, and since God owns our bodies, we ought to, chapter 6, verse 20, Glorify God with our bodies. 
that theme is going to race on into chapter 7. And so in chapter 6, Paul's exhorting them to glorify God with their bodies by not having sexual relations outside of marriage. But now, here in chapter 7, he tells them to glorify God with their bodies by having sexual relations inside of marriage. And again, if you're a visitor with us, I'm so glad you're here. We're just going to preach the next text next. But here's the question hanging over verse 1. It might have stuck out to you as, as we were reading. That question is really this. Should married people have sexual relations? Now, listen, if I were to write this letter, and I bet if you wrote this letter, chapter 7 would be among the shortest chapters in the entire Bible. Verse 1, should they? Verse 2, yes. Okay, chapter 8. Let's talk about matters concerning food and drink. But thankfully, this is Paul's letter and not ours. And just like our own lives, the stated issue really isn't the real issue. Here's the real issue. The issue that is below the issue. It's essentially, now that I'm a Christian, am I still bound by the same things that I was bound to before becoming a Christian? Things like my marriage. What about Sex, and in what ways am I now free in Christ? Since my soul is saved, am I now free to do whatever I want with my body? Remember, that was the issue in chapter 6. We looked at that last week. But Paul knows what's really going on behind the saying there in verse 1. And, and that's an errant saying that's been circulating around the Corinthian church, and now he's going to correct it. And he corrects it by offering a guiding principle for everyone in verse 17, and this guiding principle is really going to govern the entire chapter. So look down with me at verse 17. Paul's going to tell them, remain as you are. Look at this. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Remain as you are. That's the principle. That's what he's saying. Now, I want you to notice how this principle applies to both marriage in the first half of the chapter and then again to singleness in the second half of the chapter. Verse 8, look at that. It is good to remain. Verse 10, don't separate. Verse 11, if you did, remain unmarried. Verse 12, don't divorce. We just looked at verse 17 and now look at verse 20. Remain in the condition. Verse 24, let him remain. Now concerning singles, verse 26, remain as he is. Verse 40, remain as she is. Do you get the point? Remain as you are. This is the, the heartbeat, the thump over and over all the way through the chapter. And Paul, in saying this, is really going after the heart. And the bullseye, it seems, is really not marriage ultimately or sex or singleness. Those are the circumstances, the, the target that he's really going after, that the heart level target is contentment. Is the grass really greener over there? Well, Paul is going to say, stop looking over your shoulder at another kind of life, that life that you wish you had or that you think you need in order to be holy and happy. No, remain as you are. Get on living the life that God has given you. Live that life. And so this remain as you are emphasis, well, it clues us into why some of these married Christians thought 
in verse 1 that it was good not to have sexual relations. Because behind their abstinence, behind their abstinence was a looking over the shoulder at single people. Oh man, I'd be so much more spiritual if I were single. I'd pray more. I'd be more focused on heavenly things. I'd be more engaged in discipleship and I'd be more devoted to missions. How often do we tell single people in our own churches, be content in your singleness? Well, listen, singles, you're going to get your own half a chapter next week. But here, Paul says the same thing to married people. Be content in your marriage. Remain as you are. You may remember from our study last week that they didn't think that their bodies mattered much at all. Their wonky views on the resurrection, that the resurrection was purely spiritual, that it had already happened, well, that led to wonky views about their body. So perhaps they thought, well, now that I'm a Christian, my body doesn't really matter anymore. And I can live out my married life as if I were single. Some, if you look down at verse 10, even figured that maybe I'll just get out of my marriage altogether. And what we find is that they were running the opposite direction from God's design for marriage. The truth here is just as striking to us as it would have been for them, I think. And so I'd have you recall again, back up in chapter 6, verse 15, he says, your bodies are members of Christ. Where you go, Christ goes. Verse 20, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. So therefore glorify God in your body. If you are a married person, your body belongs to Jesus. And Jesus says, what I want you to do with your body is to have sex with your spouse. Or perhaps you might think about your body as the temple of the Holy Spirit, the, the dwelling place for God's glory. That's what we saw in the immediate context at the end of chapter 6. We might think about it like the Holy Spirit essentially saying to spouses, I am so glad that this body is glorifying me by having sexual relations with the person to whom they're married. How glorious. Now that probably sounds jarring to some of you, and I get it. For a whole host of reasons, you and I, we often think about sex as a kind of dirty thing, don't we? It feels jarring, almost wrong to so closely associate it with, with God because God is holy and God is pure. And maybe that's because of our past sins. Or maybe it's because of your past experiences, maybe an experience of abuse. Or maybe it was from when you were a single Christian and it seemed like the only time you talked about it was, was like it was something bad. It was something to avoid. Don't do it. God doesn't like to see it. Ugh, how embarrassing. And all of a sudden you get married and it's like a switch has to flip and all of a sudden your entire thinking for your whole single life all of a sudden has to be completely reoriented in the drive from the ceremony to the hotel. Marriage was this kind of weird, far-off place where it was allowed, but, but let's not talk about it because, you know, if we do, we don't want anybody to stumble. And there's certain wisdom to that in certain circumstances. But the Bible talks about it, and God doesn't talk about it in the way that the Corinthians are talking about it. No, he talks about it in a way that is good and it gives them glory when properly understood. Well, let me press this one step further because... I think this is really important. I imagine that when, when many of us are single, or if you're single now, 
we had no problem thinking that when I get married, well, I'm going to do it all the time. You see, I think separating sex from marriage is not really our problem. Separating it from God is our problem. Your body is a member of Christ. Where you go, Jesus goes. What you unite yourself to, you unite Jesus to. And so when a married couple enjoys their conjugal union, as Paul is commending them to do, the indwelling Holy Spirit who dwells in us says, that is glorious. Glorify God in your bodies. That's really our problem, isn't it? We assume that thinking this way somehow demeans God, that it maybe smudges his glory with our impurity. We want to keep God separate from dirty things, and that's a good instinct. But beloved, we need to be more rigorously biblical in our thinking about human sexuality and marriage. It is God's creation, and he declared it good. But why is it good? Why is it good? Well, Paul's going to give us at least two reasons here in this passage. There's all kinds of reasons all over the scriptures, but Paul gives us two here. We see that first of all in verse 2, it's a means of resisting sinful temptation. See that there? Because the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. If you are here last week, you shouldn't have a difficult time seeing the link between this chapter and chapter 6. That in chapter 6, the members of the church are using their bodies in shameful ways. Paul condemned their behavior, but he also wants to help them avoid sexual immorality. So he offers them this advice. He says, if married people want to be less tempted towards sin, they should only give themselves to one another as often as they're able. And Paul reinforces this exhortation down in verse 5. You see it there? He says, don't deprive one another. So that Satan may not tempt you. And so the first good reason for coming together is to resist temptation. But even as we think about that, we need to consider the context. This is why context is so important. Because if we isolate Paul's advice that we see here in verse 5, then it seems almost like sex has an entirely negative function. It's really just to help us not sin. But I want you to catch this. This is really important. Paul's not only stating negatively what he's already stated positively, that is specifically that we should glorify God with our bodies. This is, I think, another one of those say what truths of the Bible. That when we pray for our spouses to become more godly and to help us become more godly, we might think about being committed, for instance, to the church or, or reading our Bibles or praying, and, and all of that's really good, and those are necessary things. But when you pray, I wonder, do you include this? Do we want to see married couples in our church glorify God in their marriages? If so, should we pray 1 Corinthians 7? It seems so. Do we want to see men and women in our church use their bodies as instruments of righteousness, as Paul puts it in Romans 6? Well, here's one way to do it. Do we want to see them use their bodies in a way that honors the Lord Jesus and makes the Holy Spirit say, that's glorious? Yes, absolutely we do. So Paul says, married couples, give yourselves to one another to resist sin and the devil, but also, and here's the second reason for the goodness of the marriage union, namely this, if you're married, he says, your body isn't yours. 
Notice the strong language in verses 3 through 5. Verse 3, if you glance at it, uses the language of rights. Verse 4 says that each person has authority over the other person's body. Therefore, on account of these truths, verse 5, don't deprive or literally defraud one another. Now, there's some surprising stuff in there. And if you're not used to reading the Bible, or maybe you've not made it to this point, you're reading through the Bible in a year plan, you're thinking, wait a minute, did Paul really say that? Am I really picking up what Paul's throwing down here? Last week, we were surprised by the truth that our bodies don't belong to us. They belong to King Jesus. Our bodies are members with Christ. Where he goes, where we go, he goes. Well, this week, on the heels of that lesson, we learn that if you're married, your body doesn't only belong to Jesus, but it also belongs to your spouse. So not only do we need to think carefully about this, when we, when we hear things like, your spouse has authority over your body, that may, for some of you, make you a little bit nervous. And I get it. That makes total sense to me. But I want you to consider for a minute how countercultural Paul's words are here in light of the modern day emphasis on body autonomy. Surely Paul doesn't mean what he seems to mean, does he? Well, listen, here's the key to understanding Paul's saying to married people the fact that your body belongs to Jesus and belongs to your spouse, those are not separate ideas. Those ideas go together. Hand in hand. And so to put it another way, your body belongs to your spouse because, Christian, your body belongs to Jesus. And when your body is submitted to the lordship of Christ, then you will not use your body in any way that injures or harms your spouse. You'll use your body and you'll use their body in a way that considers them more important than yourself. Because according to Philippians 2, that was Jesus' attitude. And so this is the surprising truth of the Bible. That when both a husband and a wife are submitted to the lordship of Jesus together, when both understand my body belongs to you, your body belongs to me, and our bodies belong to Jesus, where we go, he goes, well, ideally that then becomes the safest place in the world. That's the ideal. But I want you to notice something else in the text. I want you to notice, secondly, related to this, that everything is level between the man and the woman. The man's body belongs to the woman. The woman's body belongs to the man. Everything is level. And that's totally contrary to the Roman and Greek culture of Paul's day. Paul doesn't give the husband greater rights than the wife. And I think that's really interesting because certain feminist theologians love to rail on Paul as the great misogynist. But the evidence here goes entirely in the other direction, doesn't it? Paul's actually going against the hyper-patriarchal culture of his day. And he's saying in marriage, the husband and the wife have equal rights over one another's body. Neither has more rights than the other. This is one of the ways that the gospel transforms marriages. Sin destroys nature. Grace restores it. And that's exactly what the gospel does in Christian marriages. Is it reorients everything around the lordship of Christ. So Paul's not 
only going against his culture. He's also going against, notice this, the hyper-religious view of sex that is implied in verse 1. And so their error might have been something like this. Follow along with me. Not tonight, dear. I need to focus on Jesus right now. To them, Paul says in verse 5, if you are one that deprives one another on religious pretenses because you think that your abstinence somehow makes you more spiritual, then you are a thief. You have defrauded your spouse. You tend to think that your sexual union with your spouse is contrary to the spiritual good that Christ has in mind, but as we've seen, that's not the case. In fact, the word that Paul uses for deprive here, he uses it previously in chapter 6. Look at that, chapter 6, verse 7. Speaking to those who are having conflict in the church, he says, why not rather be defrauded? Same word. Keep going, verse 8. You yourselves wrong and defraud. Same word. It's the exact same word that Paul's using in chapter 7. And so Paul wants us to feel the same moral weight of depriving one another in chapter 7 that we felt in chapter 6 when someone takes something that doesn't belong to them or will not give to another person what does rightfully belong to them. The same moral imperative is being implied in Paul's language here. That by willfully withholding your body from your spouse, you are not giving what belongs to them. He says, you're a thief. Well, Paul, as I said, wants us to feel that same weight here. But let me qualify Paul's words. I don't think he's taking aim at one gender over the other. So when we read these verses, we need to leave behind the cultural stereotypes that often stick to men and women. That men are always ready to go and women always have a headache. We got to leave those at the door. Because that's not what we see here. God's word has something better. God's word trumps social stereotypes. And he says here that this isn't a woman only issue. This is a man and a woman issue because it's a marriage issue. And so I'm sure that if you ask someone else in our church how they're doing, one common answer is going to be something like this. Oh, we're doing good, but we're busy. You're that often, don't you? I say it all the time. Everybody's busy. We go into the office early and we come home late. We have all kinds of commitments outside the home with hobbies or our kids' extracurricular activities, or we fill our spare time with streaming shows or scrolling social media or various hobbies until our heavy eyes and tired bodies finally close for the night, and we do it night after night after night after night. How often do we, perhaps even without realizing it, passively defraud one another? Not deliberately, not, not as as if with a vindictive attitude, but just by maybe habitual carelessness or inattentiveness. Days turn into weeks, and maybe weeks turn into months. But of course, some of you know from your own marriages that not all abstinence is passive, is it? How often might you be tempted to weaponize abstinence following conflict? That is, freezing the other person out until they have proven themselves worthy again over a sufficient amount of time. Whether you're being vindictive or just apathetic and indifferent, Paul says you may be a thief. 
You may have robbed your spouse by taking or withholding what rightfully belongs to them. And that's a really jarring statement, isn't it? You stop and go, wait, that's in the Bible? It is, and it is jarring. And I think it's jarring because we tend to think about sex as being really just about me. Why would we ever think about it in terms of defrauding a spouse when it's my body to do with as I please? So Paul is reorienting their thinking around Christ and his lordship. But if you're a Christian, then here's the truth. It's not your body. Your body belongs to Jesus. And you're a Christ, if you're a Christian husband or wife, your body belongs not only to Jesus, but also to your spouse. And whenever you and I withhold our bodies from our spouses, whether actively or passively, then we risk defrauding them. That we risk opening ourselves up to temptation. That we risk not loving in the way that Christ had loved us. We risk risk eroding the very foundation of our marriage. Now, I want to stop again and add another important qualifier because there's, this is like one of those knotted up things, you know, like a big ball of Christmas lights that you pull out that have been in storage all year. You're like, where do I begin? I just got to start unknotting it because there's all kinds of issues. Not every Christian couple needs to be the same on this. Paul doesn't have a counter There's not a magic number. How much is enough? How do we know if we're doing it right? No, Christianity is not that superficial. Nor will every season of life be the same. Things naturally change from one season to the next, and that may especially be true even as you grow older. Busy seasons come and go, at least, ideally at least they go, and our bodies, well, they change over time, don't they? And so Paul's not offering any kind of magic number by which to measure yourself. He's not giving here a Christian star chart to know if you're top of the class or not. In fact, Paul says in verse 6, there may even be times when the couple agrees to abstain and that that may be to the glory of God. Look at what he says, verse 6. Or verse 5, rather. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement. For a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And he says in verse 6, this is a concession that I'm making. It's not a command. You don't have to do it. It's not a matter of obedience, but it's a concession that, that Christ is willing to give if it serves your good and God's glory. Notice a handful of things in verse 5. First of all, both spouses need to agree. One spouse cannot unilaterally make the decision for both. And so just like you wouldn't likely go out and make a major financial purchase without your spouse's agreement, at least I hope you wouldn't do that. In the same way that you make those big decisions together, because it's not your money, it's y'all's money, so in the same way, these kinds of decisions need to be made together as well. Husbands, your body belongs to your wife. Wives, your body belongs to your husband. This is a a joint account, so to speak. And these kinds of decisions need to be made together. But second, in verse 6, notice it's only for a limited time. Paul says, have a plan. And when that mutually agreed time of abstinence is up, then come back together again. 
Thirdly and finally, there in verse 6, assuming no providential hindrances like medical conditions and other things, Paul says there's only one good reason to abstain. And it's not so that you can work on your career. It's not so that you can get through school or pursue your hobbies. It's not so that you can get your mandatory eight hours a night, but so that you might devote yourself to prayer. It is for your good and the glory of God. Now, obviously, when we read this, there's exceptions. There are seasons in which it may not be possible. One biblical example in the Old Testament is when the men in Israel were sent away from war. God's law prevented men in their first year of marriage from being sent away. And on the one hand, it was to preserve the conjugal union between he and his new, and his new spouse. Because it's essential to the health of the marriage. But also, if he's going to go off to war, there's a chance he may not come back. They need time to get pregnant, Lord willing, to preserve their family line. Either way, God's law says don't separate, not yet. Practically speaking in our own lives, other times might include late-term pregnancies or, or the right time right after giving birth. Some medical conditions make it difficult or painful or impossible. I know that perhaps some of you have struggled with that. Oh, beloved, lots of wisdom is needed for applying this principle in a godly way that serves our spouses well, that's not motivated by selfishness in any way, but is able to be applied in godly ways in challenging circumstances. But either way, the principle still holds. That is her body. That is his body. And that principle should shape our conversations. And so if you're thinking about enlisting in the military, for example, you might sit down with your new spouse and say, hey, what do you think about me enlisting? That may take me and my body, which is really your body, away for long periods of time. Let's think about that according to God's word. Because it's not just my decision over my body. This is your body. Or perhaps more close to home for many of us, if you apply for that job or perhaps even think about accepting that job offer, you might ask, well, is it, is it going to require weeks of traveling at a time? Is it going to be months of accumulative travel? Well, then brothers and sisters, talk about it. Babe, if I take this job, that means that, that it's going to take my body, which is also your body, away for long periods of time. Is our marriage in a place where that would be good for us? Can you think of any reason why this might be unwise? And if not, how can we be intentional about making sure that we come back together as quickly as possible? Let's make a plan. Well, in these and in a hundred other ways, the point stands. Don't look over your shoulder. Be content where you are. And where you are is in a one flesh union where sexual intimacy is not only an important part of your life together, it is an important part of your Christian discipleship. Your body belongs to Jesus. So we've just considered in verses 1 through 7 how to glorify God in marriage by coming together. But now in verses 8 through 16 in the second half of the passage, we want to consider a second point, namely how to glorify God in marriage by staying together. In verses 8 and 9, Paul says, now there is a place where abstinence does glorify God, and that place is called singleness. So then married person, if you want to remain abstinent for Jesus' sake, well, then you should have stayed single. Now, single people, as I told you, you get a whole sermon of yourself next week, so we're not going to linger here today. Come back next week. But don't check out today. All Scripture is from God, which means it's profitable. It's good for you. So stick with me. 
Paul briefly mentions singleness here, but he's using it to make a point for married people. To the Christian husband or wife making statements like the one in verse 1, those who are looking over their shoulder, wishing that they were single and, and abstinent again, he says, no, that boat has sailed. Now, a possible response to Paul's response might have been, yeah, but um, has that ship really sailed? Well, why don't we just get a divorce? And then that just kind of resolves the whole body conflict. That's the emphasis ultimately of verses 10 all the way through 16. We just considered how to glorify God in marriage by coming together, and now he's going to press in to have us consider how to glorify God by staying together. And I want you to remember as we read that Corinth was a frontier mission field in Paul's day. This church is filled with first-generation believers, and the gospel, as, God, as it goes out and God uses it to convert sinners, does not always cut so neatly through families. You may have one believing spouse and one unbelieving spouse, one who is, who is trusted in Christ and one who scoffs the gospel. And that seems to be the situation in this church. In fact, just this week, I sent an email out to a number of my pastor friends who pastor in frontier context, asking them, of, uh, asking them what they've seen in this regard. And I just got a whole uh, inbox full of emails, one example after another, of one spouse being converted and the other one not yet being converted. Examples of spouses being faithful in the church and faithful to their husband or wife for 20, 30, 40 years, still praying, still sharing the gospel, still following Christ. It was amazing. If we had more time, I'd love to share a whole lot of them. Maybe I'll shoot some out to you this week. But we need to remember that Corinth is a frontier mission field. These are first-generation Christians. So imagine this scenario. A married man or a woman gets saved. And now... They've taken following Christ seriously. They're totally serious about imitating Paul, just as he commends them to do. And so this man or this woman might look at their spouse and think, wait a minute, Jesus wasn't married. And Paul wasn't married either, for that matter. So surely the more spiritual thing then would be to get divorced and to be single again, or to divorce from my non-Christian spouse and marry a Christian spouse. Well, Paul here anticipates their possible objection. In verses 10 and 11, he paraphrases Jesus' teaching about divorce. That's why he says, not I, but the Lord. He says, these are Jesus' words. And he says, Jesus doesn't want you to separate. That if one spouse illegitimately separates from another, he says, well, then they're not permitted to remarry. Why? Because even if you're not together, you're still married, is Paul's point. Jesus taught in Matthew 19 that what God has brought together, let no man put asunder or separate. In other words, God is the only one with the authority to separate a marriage union. That is above our pay grade. We don't have the authority to do it. Your bodies belong to him. And that's why Paul says that if two believers separate for any reason other than for the exceptions that God himself provides in his word, and we'll consider one of those in just a moment, namely adultery or abandonment or abuse in the gospel, compels the couple to reconcile. We see that language of reconciliation there, don't we? She should remain unmarried or else be reconciled. And the same goes for the husband at the end of verse 11. You say, okay, Paul, I get it. So if two Christians are separated, they should ideally reconcile because they have the gospel. Reconciled people reconcile with people. That's the principle, right? But 
what if, Paul, what if, what if a Christian is married to a non-Christian? One who's even, maybe even hostile to Christ and the gospel, and the Christian spouse is thinking, wait a minute, you're telling me that I've got to go do that with them? They're not even spiritual. To these, he says in verse 12, I say, I, not the Lord. Now understand, Paul isn't paraphrasing any explicit teaching from Jesus. That's why he uses that phrase there. But he is leaning on his apostolic authority, which is to say, what I'm saying now is not somehow less authoritative to what I just said to you. What I previously said was what Jesus said, and I'm just quoting him. Now I'm telling you as an extension of my apostolic authority what Christ would have for you if you're married to an unbelieving spouse. So verse 10, what Jesus said, I say. Verse 12, as Jesus' apostle, what I say, he says. Now I take Paul to be speaking here, just to pause for a moment, I think with great tenderness. He's not being harsh in his rebuke and his exhortations. He's speaking with great compassion. As one who knows that he's speaking into really hard situations. Those situations in which there's nonstop tension in the home due to one spouse's allegiance to Jesus. Well, what do we do then? Because that's really hard. Paul says in verses 12 and 13 that if your non-Christian spouse consents, literally is pleased to live with you. In other words, if they don't have any intention of leaving you, then you need to remain as you are. And here's why, verse 14. He says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Christian, if you are here and you are married to an unbelieving spouse, your unbelieving spouse doesn't make you any less spiritual or any less unclean. Remember back in chapter 6, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. He says, they can't make you unholy. But by staying in the marriage, you might make them holy. What does he mean by that? Well, that word to be holy or to be sanctified is used in a variety of ways in the New Testament. And like we have here, the word doesn't always refer to Christians. Consider Hebrews chapter 10, for example. The writer says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? In the same breath, the writer speaks about a sanctified person trampling underfoot the Son of God and outraging the Spirit of grace. This is the language of apostasy, of one who has had access to the gospel, of one who has tasted and witnessed its power in the Christians around him, and who maybe even claimed to believe in Christ at one point in time, but in the end proved not to be a Christian at all. Such a person is quote-unquote sanctified, set apart, holy, not because they were born again through faith in Christ, not because they're righteous by faith in Christ, but because God in his mercy put them in close contact with the gospel, either in the context of a local church like we see in Hebrews chapter 10, or as in 1 Corinthians 7, by being married to a Christian. 
He has set that spouse apart according to his providence. All that he ordains is right, that that unbelieving spouse and your children would have open and free access to the gospel because of you. Now, notice verse 14 doesn't assume that the unbelieving spouse is going to become a Christian. No such guarantee is given. But it does, according to verse 16, assume an evangelistic motivation. How do you know whether or not you might save them? That's the aim. That you would conduct yourself in such a way that they might be brought by God's grace to repentance and belief in the gospel. If you want to see a parallel passage on this, you can go to 1 Peter chapter 3. That a wife, perhaps married to an unbelieving man, might win him with her silence. Not to say that she doesn't speak, but that she's not disrespectful. That all of her life, her lips, and everything commends the gospel to him. I can say from personal experience... And like me, some of you are Christians today. This is your biography. Because the prayers and the godly example of a believing mother is more powerful than the ungodly example of an unbelieving father. Or that may be vice versa. The prayers and the godly conduct of a believing father is more powerful than the bad example of an unbelieving mother. Do you believe that? I wonder... And how many of our testimonies has that been written? Well, verses 12 to 14 represent the ideal situation. In an ideal situation, they don't have any plans of leaving. They might be hostile to the gospel, but not ultimately hostile to you. They want to stay. They've got no intention of abandoning you. Therefore, glorify God by staying together. But sadly, that's not always the case, is it? Verse 15 What if the unbelieving partner leaves? To that Christian spouse, Paul says, well, then you are not bound. I take Paul to mean at least two things by this statement in verse 15. First, the believing spouse isn't bound to stay in the marriage if the unbeliever abandons them. Second, since they're no longer bound to the marriage, they are free to remarry in the Lord. That's the language Paul uses later on in the chapter, down in verse 39, talking about about formerly married singles. And so Paul's not just making this up as he goes. This isn't just Paul having a bleeding heart for those who are in difficult situations and wanting to ease it up a little bit. He is rooting everything that he's saying here in his own apostolic authority. And that apostolic authority is rooted deeply in God's word, specifically in God's moral law. So for example, Exodus 21. We don't have time to turn there this afternoon, but I'd normally love to show you, but I'm just going to have to tell you. In Exodus 21... Verses 10 and 11, a husband is required to provide three things for his wife. Her food, her clothing, and her marital rights. In other words, if he doesn't provide for her, protect her, or get this, 1 Corinthians 7, grant his wife her conjugal rights, then he has, in effect, abandoned her. So Moses says, quote, then she shall go out for nothing. Now, Paul doesn't ever explicitly quote Exodus 21 here, but it is all over the passage. You can tell that God's word is just the framework out of which Paul speaks and writes and roots himself in. She's no longer bound to the marriage. 
We don't have authority to divide what God has brought together, but God does. And he has provided certain provisions in his law for the dissolution of marriages under certain circumstances because he's merciful to sinners. But we do need to press into this a little bit more for the sake of clarity. This is an often misunderstood and misapplied passage, I think, that when Paul talks about a non-Christian spouse departing, is he only thinking about it spatially, that they're leaving the home and they're moving away with no intention then of coming back? Well, yeah, it at least means that, but I don't think that's all that it means. So remember, Exodus 21 considers abandonment, the denial of provision, protection, and conjugal rights. All of that is implied in the word depart in verse 15. And I want to take it on good authority that the principles of Exodus 21 also have a wider range of applications, including, but not limited to, persistent spousal abuse. I can give you a number of examples from Christian theologians through the centuries. For now, I'd have you consider the late 16th century Puritan William Perkins. He writes this, commenting on this passage. Like unto desertion is malicious and spiteful dealing of married folks one with the other. In other words, he says, when married people are consistently malicious and spiteful, that's the same thing as desertion. He writes, malicious dealing is when dwelling together, they require of each other intolerable conditions. And here it may be demanded what a believer should do who is in certain and imminent danger, either of loss of life or breach of conscience, if they both abide together. He says, if the, if the husband threatens hurt, the believing wife may leave in this case, and it is all one, as if the unbelieving man should depart. In other words, if that man stays in the house and doesn't physically remove himself, but is consistently threatening his wife in such a way that she is threatened either with loss of life or some other certain or imminent danger, Perkins says, then it is just as if that man, though present in the home, has departed. For to depart from one and drive away by threat, he says, are equivalent in other words, either that unbelieving spouse has left or they have operated with such intolerable cruelty in the home that they have forced the spouse out of the house at the risk of loss of life or some other kind of imminent danger. And I think that's a right implication from the principles of Exodus 21 concerning provision, protection, and conjugal rights. And so he says, you're free. This is one of the qualifications that God gives for divorce. Now, there are others. We don't have time to go into those today. I've preached on that in the past. You can find that online in our gender and marriage series on Matthew 19. But Paul says here, they are free. And free to what end? Because he says, God has called you to peace. That's the motivation that God has called you to peace into verse 15. So let me try to summarize what we've considered. 
To Christian spouses in mixed marriages, Paul says, if you had a relatively peaceful marriage before becoming a Christian, then you should try to maintain that peace in your marriage after your conversion, as long as it means not disbelieving something God commands you to believe, or disobeying something God commands you to obey, or putting yourself in physical harm. We are called by God to endure all kinds of bitter providences, all kinds of trials and tribulations. But the Lord God does not call a wife or even a husband to go back into an abusive home and take one on the other cheek for Team Jesus. And we need to get that rotten idea out of our minds because we can't get it out of the Bible. even though present, that spouse is departed. So Perkins and others like William Ains, they all say desertion includes malicious dealings. It includes persistent spousal abuse. They're free. The late J.B. Lightfoot said it well, though. Let's assume the ideal situation. Let's assume that they're hostile to the gospel, but not hostile to the spouse. Let's assume they won't have anything to do with Jesus, but they're content to remain and be married and, 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 and struggle through communication issues and not being on the same page with spiritual matters issues and disciplining the children issues and, and all other kinds of tensions that are really difficult, but not ultimately grounds for separating. This is what the late J.B. Lightfoot says. It's true of our Christian brothers and sisters married to non-Christian houses but, or spouses, but it's also true for all of us. And it's a good way to end. He says, what St. Paul said is this. Don't let any conflict in family relations arise out of your Christianity. Live peaceably with the heathen husband or wife who wishes to live with you. If a discussion is urged on their part, do not refuse it. The Christian is not enslaved by such an allegiance that he or she may not thus be set free, but then let the liberation be the work of another. In other words, don't be the one to free yourself. Trust the Lord and trust his word. But then let the liberation, he says, be the work of another. Do not foster dissensions. Do not promote a separation. Do not... Endanger peace, and then he says this, peace is the very atmosphere of your calling in Christ. It is the very air with which you breathe as Christians. Friend, if you're here and you are not a Christian, perhaps you're here with a friend, perhaps you're married to a Christian, I don't know where you are. I would have you know that Paul's not directly addressing you in the second half of the passage. He's talking to Christians. And yet, even in that, there is something there for you, and that is, in this kind of life, what you see is a life that has been totally transformed by the gospel, that is no longer dependent upon finding an identity and whether my spouse agrees with me and is on the same page with me and adores me and worships the ground that I walk on because they may not. Only Christ can give that kind of meaning and that kind of stability and that kind of rootedness to love even when you're not always loved as you wish. To be committed to the gospel 
to be committed to the good news of Jesus for the good of a spouse and to serve them in any way possible because that's what Christ has done for us. Friend, that is what Christ, that is what Christ has done. That he did not consider himself more important than others, but rather considered others more important than himself. This was his mindset. That even though he is the very son of God, he emptied himself of all of the rights that are due to his divine nature, and he willingly humiliated himself by becoming a man, that he might endure in the same flesh with the same weaknesses and all the same temptations that you face and that I face. And he did it perfectly. Not one spot or stain of sin. And he was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Why death on a cross? Because the wages of sin is death. Friend, I hope that you don't leave today without realizing that the wages of sin is death. And why did Jesus have to die? So that sinners like you might live. That by throwing yourself on the mercy of God offered to you in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, he offers you forgiveness of sins to purify you of everything that has made you look or feel unclean, to sanctify you and set you apart for holy purposes, no greater thing to live for, and to have you be declared righteous, robed in Christ. Friend, listen, the kind of life that Paul is commending is the kind of life that is transformed by the gospel, the kind of life, this kind of love, to love what, who is, in one sense, an enemy, can only come from Christ. Because all of us sitting here were once enemies, loved by God, and have been brought by His grace to be His friends through Christ. So, friend, I would encourage you to trust in Christ, and then see what he does with your life. Let's pray.